All right, we are going to be looking at Matthew 26. Uh, do you guys want to go to Children's Church? Do they want to go? Yeah. Sending those two out. Okay, let's, let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we look at your word, we just ask you to grant us wisdom. Looking at a, a failed life, we can have a better understanding of the weakness we just sang about with regard to ourselves, to be careful, to be wise, to be faithful to rest in your compassion for sinners because that's who you are and that's what we see today. We ask you to help us in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're in Matthew 26, and this morning we have the marvelous privilege of looking at Matthew's account of the Lord's Supper. We're not going to have the Lord's Supper today. We're going to do it next week, but Jesus' last meal was with his disciples before he was slain as the Lamb of God. And of all the Gospels, Matthew's account of the Lord's Supper is actually the briefest, even though Matthew's gospel is quite large. He spends the least time on the Last Supper. As Matthew is going somewhere. He's like short and to the point, and he's taking us to the cross. And as we mentioned last week, he's pressing for that. That's the direction of the gospel. So he's pausing only to explain how Jesus came to his death and, and then what the cross means for us. And he does that by addressing the whole Lord's Supper question. So, of course, he tells us really important information about Jesus himself as well. So that's a big part of it. But one thing you'll notice as we move forward in Matthew 26 is that Jesus is absolutely in control of everything that's going on. There's not, no surprises whatsoever. Uh, the whole time, he's causing things and allowing things to proceed that are going to fulfill God's plan. And he knows who the betrayer is. But what does he do to stop him? Nothing. He doesn't do anything to stop him. He tells the disciples what's going to happen ahead of time, even up to the very moment, so they know that he knows. In the garden, when his betrayer actually approaches him, he, he says, friend, what have you come for? He's not trying to stop him. When Peter gets really violent, Jesus reminds him that he could in an instant have 12 legions of angels Come to his defense. That's a lot of angels. I mean, I don't know how many angels are in a, an angelic legion, but if it's anything like a Roman legion, we're talking about many tens of thousands of angels that are ready to pounce if he's in trouble, if he calls on them, which of course he didn't do. And then before the great council, the Sanhedrin, Jesus is completely silent. He doesn't defend himself in any way. He makes no effort to defend himself. So he's never surprised. He's never a victim. What he's doing is intentional, planned, ordained. It's God's will. He's going to follow God's will to the bitter end. So he gives himself over to death by crucifixion because that is why he came. That's the thing he came for. So but one more thing has to happen before that, and that is this meal. He's going to give final instructions to the apostles, but most of all, he's going to introduce a new way. I mean, he's hinted at it throughout the gospel. Um, you can't put new wine into old wineskins, things like that, but the inauguration of the new covenant has to happen, and that's going to happen at this Passover meal. It's not just any meal. It's a Passover meal. So he's going to die on Passover. It's a feast of great significance. The Jews were supposed to have kept that feast for 1,500 years leading up to this day, almost 1,500 years. Now, there were periods in Jewish history where they didn't really celebrate it. They didn't do anything right. They were worshiping their idols too much. But that was what God had asked them to do leading up to that day, and, of course, they did do it many times. But... Um, you remember Passover, right? That's when the Jews were delivered from Egypt, and the angel of death was sent down by God to 
bring this plague, a curse, a direct, not a, not, it's something that could not have been a natural thing. It's not the coronavirus. Um, it's not like, oh, be careful, you might get it. It's like specifically identifying the firstborn of the entire land. So only they are going to die. So it's not something that you can catch if you're the secondborn and the thirdborn or the fourthborn or anything like that. So it's clearly a miraculous plague that God brings on Egypt. And the Jews would die from it too, unless they took the blood of a lamb and put it over their door and the angel of death passed over. I mean, that's what it is. We all know that story. So you were safe through the blood of the lamb. So the Passover meal was the perfect place for Jesus to explain that he is actually the fulfillment of that, that a new covenant is being inaugurated through him, that he is actually the Lamb of God. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him, what did he say? Behold, it's my cousin Jesus. That's not what he said. He said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's what he said. John, being a prophet, knew, recognized right away who Jesus was. So Jesus is now entering into that sacrificial work, actually becoming the sacrificial lamb. That's what he's going to be. Christ will prepare um, himself for that, but he's also preparing his men for the future. So he has a lot to do and say on this particular night, these final words of preparation for his disciples. It's going to be hard for them. Um, there's going to be a lot of questions they have to ask. There's going to be stunned reactions to the pronouncement that Jesus makes. There's prophecies that he's going to tell them, prophecies of denial for Peter, prophecies of cowardice for the rest of them, um, words of warning, words of comfort, promises made to them. So John's gospel has five long chapters that take place at the Last Supper of Jesus. Matthew has only a few verses, but they're very important. So let's look at verse 17. Matthew 26 it says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? So where do you want to meet? They're asking him. He says, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So that's a kind of a summary statement. Again, less information than we have from some of the other Gospels. The other Gospels tell us that Peter and John were the two disciples that were kind of um, asked to prepare everything, to follow through on these arrangements, get the room set up, and get the meal taken care of, to prepare for all of that. Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus told the men that they would go, here he just says in Matthew, a certain man, but they would actually see a man carrying a pitcher when they got to this certain place, and they were that was the guy they were supposed to follow, and it was his house. They were Now, how would he know that? How would he be happy to, I mean, was the guy like planned? He's going to walk around with a picture until they got there, or was that just something that Jesus prophetically knew would happen when they arrived, you know? Um, seems It seems more on the miraculous side. Mark uh, chapter 14, verse 13, it says, Go to the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room which I, in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So Jesus had had it arranged with a certain man, but for them to connect to that man, they have to find a guy carrying a pitcher who was probably a servant in that household. So it's pretty interesting. But the emphasis there is on Jesus' perfect knowledge of 
what they will encounter at just a particular moment in the future there. So again, he's in control. And that highlights both his prophetic knowledge that he does know these things, but also the importance of this particular meal. Everything says that this particular day is very special. So the room's procured. Um, the food has to be prepared. A sacrifice has to be made. They, they have to take the lamb to the temple. So it's Peter and John's job to make sure that gets done. It has to be slaughtered by the priests. Uh, the temple, it's just a couple of days of incredible grand worship and rivers of blood. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. There's tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people there for the feast, and they've all got a lamb. And all those lambs have got to go to the temple and be sacrificed. So it was quite a system they had set up with hundreds of priests making that thing happen. All these people had to be accommodated. So there's, there's silver trumpets blaring. There's The Levites are killing the lamb brought by Peter and John and many, many other lambs in a long line. And they take the fat out of it. They burn it. The blood is caught in bowls. So they have two long rows of priests, and they're passing the bowls of blood down. And the blood's just poured at the base of the altar there. Um, just blood, 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 blood streaming down off of there, and it's working its way down into the Kidron Brook. The Levitical singers are singing uh, the Hallel, which are Psalms 113 through 118, and as they sing each line, the people there that are worshiping and waiting in the lines, they're repeating each line of Psalm 113, Psalm 114, Psalm 115, Psalm 116, Psalm 117, Psalm 118, and then we would go back and start over again and, and sing all of that. We'll talk about that more next, next week, maybe. Um, but with the words of the Psalms in their hearts, then Peter and John took the remainder of the animal back to the house that was chosen by Jesus, and they roasted it there for the meal. So the table's furnished with unleavened bread and a, a paste of bitter herbs and a few other things and wine mixed with water. And all the items um, are reminders of the great deliverance from bondage in Israel, right? That's what the Passover meal is all about. If you've ever had a Passover meal, um, too bad Mary Nelson's not around. We always went to her house for Passover, right? And uh, we would, it would always be explained again each item on the plate and what they all represented. They, they were, um, some were traditional, but some are given actually in Scripture about the things that are supposed to remind you of this freedom that you have from God, this bondage that was... Um, being slaves in Egypt and this great deliverance that happened. So it's all a picture. It's all an illustration. The Jews were enslaved in Egypt. 400 years of slavery. I don't think we think about how long that is very often. It's not like, you know, I know you're in bondage, but in 50 years you guys will all be free. 400 years in bondage. It's all a picture of something much more serious. What bondage are people in today? Bondage of sin, right? I mean, that's the great bondage. That's the most serious thing. Jesus said in John 8.34, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. And we all become slaves to sin, and we have to be set free. So mankind is in bondage, and we find ourselves prisoners of sin. We're actually chained to lawlessness, if you want to think about it that way. There's, there's no bondage of any kind that is more secure that you can think of that is more strong than the bondage of sin, because no human being you know can break themselves free from sin. They're committed to it. They can't stop it. Some kind of sin is always arising in their hearts. They need salvation. They need deliverance. They need to be free. So 
Christ came to free us. And that bondage has a, a penalty with it. It's a sin not only enslaves, it kills. So Paul says the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23, right? So Jesus is bringing the disciples together for something really wonderful. He has good news for them. This new covenant is going to be a way of salvation from the bondage and the penalty of sin. Christ is literally going to take upon himself the death that sinners deserve through the new covenant. So that's all coming. So in verse 18, Jesus says, my time is at hand. So yes, it is. It's time. In verse 20, it, um, Jesus takes us to the, the meal itself. It's, it's, it's evening time. And uh, before Matthew takes us to the new covenant, uh, we get this opportunity to see how truly deep human sin can go. Probably as they sat there, the, the, the last thing the, the disciples, at least 11 of them, would have thought was that one of those sitting there was going to betray Jesus. They didn't have that in mind, sitting down. They knew something was coming. Jesus had been talking about prophesying his own death. It's, I'm sure it's a heavy time, but it never entered their minds that one of them was going to betray him. But that's what it is. Verse 20. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at table with the 12 disciples, and they were eating. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. They're grieved. They're stunned and they're sad. It's a pretty familiar scene to us, but I, I always found it fascinating that the disciples would ask Jesus if it was them. And I don't think they actually are worried that it's them. Surely not I, Lord. There's a little grammatical thing I want to explain about that. We, we ask questions in a certain way. Um, and, and so when we look at this, we want to ask ourselves, could they have considered the possibility that Jesus knew that they were going to end up doing something that they had no intention of doing? I mean, is that why they're asking, like, is, am I going to be the one doing it? Because I, I sure don't want to betray you. And I don't think that's actually what's going on. And it's mainly from the grammar that I think that. Uh, for example, when Jesus tells Peter later in the meal, he says, you're going to deny me three times. What does Peter say? Am I really going to deny you? I'm really worried about that. No, he says, no way. I would never deny you, right? I mean, because they know their own hearts and their own loyalty to him. So, so when he's asking this, Peter isn't thinking, Oh, yes, it could be me. I might deny him. Is it me? That's, that's not what it is. It's the way they ask it. Surely not I. Surely not I. We would say it like this. It won't be me. That, that's what they're saying. It won't be me. That's, why, that's the way they're asking this question. In ancient languages, and Greek is one of those, um, People have a different way of asking questions than we do, and some modern languages do this as well. You, you frame a question frequently with an expected answer. Does that make sense? So the way you say it implies that you're looking for, especially with yes or no questions, you're implying that you're expecting from the person you're asking the question whether it's going to get a positive answer or you're going to get a negative answer. And it has to do with the word not. So in English, you could say, am I the traitor? And you could be expecting a yes answer. Yes, you are the traitor. Or you could say, am I the traitor? And you could be expecting a no answer. How would You can't tell from just the words what you might be expecting Jesus to say. 
So in English, it's exactly the same. But in ancient times, they would put the word not in the question. And if you put the word not in the question, you were actually expecting the answer to be no. If you didn't put the word not in there, then you were expecting the answer to be yes. You might be wrong, but that's kind of your, your leading. There's a leading element to the question, whether you use the word not or not. So if it was written, is it I, if that was the question they asked, they would be expecting him to say yes. But since they say, it is not I, is it? They're really expecting him to say no. So it's really a way of saying, surely you can't say it's me because it's not me. And that's what they're saying. That's what they're implying with the question. So that's just kind of to think about that, to kind of take away that. Maybe some had some self-doubts, but I don't think so. I think they're all being insistent that there's no way, there's absolutely no way that they could betray Jesus. Now, Peter said there was absolutely no way he could deny Jesus. <laughs> And he did it. So, but, but in their hearts, they don't think it's going to happen. But anyway, verse 23, he says, um, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. That doesn't identify Judas, does it, yet? It just affirms that it's one of them. So he makes this pronouncement about this man, one of them, in verse 24. The son of man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That's a pretty important statement, especially this element of it. What is written has to happen. It has to occur. Jesus will go to the cross. But woe... To that man, a woe is the pronouncement of a curse, right? Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. He's accursed. So it is written, and it is a curse upon the man that brings it about. Two things going on there. Uh, first, where is it written? Most people believe it's a reference to Psalm 41, David's psalm. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That's usually considered that prophetic implication of that verse. But here's where people usually stumble or have a problem. And I've met some people that really had a serious problem with this. If it is written that Judas is going to do this, if it's like set in stone, that there's no way around it, how can he really be accursed? I mean, he's doing God's will, right? That's the question people often have about this. So it's kind of good to think this through to be able to answer those questions. It's actually a very good question, and it one that um, people really do stumble over. I had a friend that just couldn't get this out of his head. So we have to think about how God's sovereign will and human decisions relate to each other. I want to talk about that just for a sec. So the first thing to know is that God's sovereign will is absolute. He controls Everything that happens, he's over everything that happens. There's nothing surprises him. Uh, nothing happens in the world that is outside of his control. I guess that's the best way to say it. Nothing happens in the world that is outside of his control. He directs, he influences, he permits according to his sovereignty and according to the situation you're dealing with. That does not mean he approves of everything that happens, does it? Because God blasts people for what they do. This Judas is accursed for what he's going to do. But God, while he doesn't, um, he's not out of control when anything happens, he doesn't approve of everything that happens, 
he, he's holy, he hates sin, he hates it, but he does allow or shape the direction of evil for his purposes. I mean, probably the most famous Old Testament example is Joseph and his brothers when they sold him into slavery and did all these horrible things. And at the end of it all, when he finally meets them again, he says, you know, you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You did a horrible thing, and God used that horrible thing to bring about a good result. So that's a really clear example of, of that. There's sin. Does God hate the sin that those guys committed? Did they do something really? Yes. Evil. And yet God used it for a greater good. And, of course, the coming of Christ is that to the highest level. It's interesting. Lamentations, chapter 3, uh, you know, Jeremiah's lamenting over the fall of Jerusalem, the slaughter of his people, the destruction of the holy temple. And he says in verse 37 of Lamentations 3, Jeremiah says, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? You say something, it's God's sovereign will that you say it. Does that mean he approves of everything you say? You can probably think of some things right now that he doesn't approve of that you've said. Maybe this morning. And then he says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint? He doesn't stop there. He says, Offer complaint in view of his sins. That's the factor that you have to remember. God orders human affairs for his purposes, his good purposes. God acts, and there are human evil acts, and God turns those human evil acts for his ultimate purposes. That's what's going on. But people do that themselves. And how can we complain when we say God is sovereign over all things in view of our sin? In other words, our sin is real. It really comes from us. It's our choice that we actually make. Another clear example is Peter's prayer in Acts chapter 4, verse 27, talking about the unjust killing of Jesus, which had just happened. And he says, truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, he's talking to the Lord, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the Romans, and the people of Israel. I mean, everybody was in it, right? to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So all of those people were acting out of their own wicked hearts, their own selfish desires. Pontius Pilate had his motives. Herod had his motives. The high priest had their motives. Uh, the, the soldiers had their reasons. The people of Israel crying for Jesus' death had their reasons for doing it. All those people acted against Jesus out of their own will. It, it's a concert of wickedness. You guys look like an orchestra before me this morning, all spread out there, and I'm, I could conduct you. But um, it's, it's, so it's like that. It's like a concert, an orchestra. All these different motives and parts and, and notes are being played, and they're all evil from all these different groups of people. The greatest crime ever committed in history, deicide. You know what deicide is? It's the murder of God. They're all guilty of it. But God ordained it, and it was all according to his plan for the salvation of us. So God is in control, even the control of evil. And that's just clear throughout the whole Bible. He sends rapacious armies to come and attack his own people, and then he punishes them for doing that. Because what they did was evil, and what his people did was evil to deserve what they did to them. It's just consistent through all of Scripture. 
Kings rise and fall by God's will. Blessings and disasters are under his sovereign control. God even hardened Pharaoh's heart multiple times. Because if Pharaoh is a rational human, he would have let the Israelites go after maybe the third plague. You know? But God hardened his heart. Why? So it can never be said, maybe that was those were natural things that happened, and maybe we were delivered by nature. It's so clear that God delivered Israel by a mighty hand, an omnipotent, miraculous deliverance that they could never question it. He wanted it that way, so he took Pharaoh's wicked nature and just kept him there. Not that if Pharaoh had let them go, he would have been good. He just would have been a, a, a rational ruler, right? We better protect the rest of our, what's left of our country. But he wouldn't even do that. God hardened his heart. He used his evil to magnify his own deliverance. So it is with Judas. He was appointed according to a divine plan. The treachery was prophesied. In fact, way back in John chapter 6, pretty early in Jesus' ministry, he says, did I, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? I mean, it, was, it was always that way. So God knew what was coming. God ordered everything to bring Jesus up to this point. And everything, when I say everything, I'm including the betrayal of Judas. So God did not compelled Judas to betray Jesus. Where did that desire to betray Jesus come from? It came from Judas's own nature, his own heart, his own sin, his own wickedness. God didn't compel him to do that. That came from his wicked and perverse heart. Judas wanted to betray Jesus, and he fully chose by the exercise of his own will in accordance with his own corrupt nature to betray the most innocent man that ever lived. It came entirely from him. But did God ordain the timing and the bringing together of all the pieces to make this happen according to his schedule? Yes. Judas would betray Jesus. Jesus would be betrayed. Judas was the man who would do it at exactly the right moment. In John's Gospel, it says right after this brief conversation between Jesus and Judas at the Last Supper that it says Satan entered into him. Judas was a man that was completely sold out to darkness. And even face to face across a table from Jesus, Satan entered into him. And so his condemnation is severe. And it's so severe that Jesus says it would be better for him had he never been born. So here are two truths, and they are not contradictory. God is sovereign. Man is responsible for his own actions. Those are both true. How can that work? God is infinite, and he can make it work. Sin comes out of our own hearts. God doesn't make men bad, but he can order their evil or channel their evil or direct their evil for his own good purposes, and he does it all the time. So that's the way it is right here. So never diminish the heinousness of what Judas did. It was evil. It was evil in the extreme, and his damnation is sure. So what a legacy legacy to go down in history as the betrayer of the Son of God. That's why Dante's Inferno has him in the, the last, the bottom rung of hell. You know, it's the lowest place in hell. That's just some medieval guy. That's not the Bible, but it's just an interesting um, thought there that that's how he conceived of it. It is the worst crime, certainly, to betray the most innocent man, the only innocent man that ever lived. You know, if you want to betray me, I probably deserve it, even if I didn't do anything to you <laughs> because of other things I've done. But Jesus was the most innocent man that ever lived. You betray him and you're betraying holy perfection, 
What a, what a crime. It's the highest crime. The best person that ever lived. So those words, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, it would have been good for that man had he not been born. Jesus spoke those words with Judas like sitting there at the table. He doesn't say it behind his back. And I don't know if he looked at him. Maybe there was eye contact with him at that moment when he said it. It doesn't say. But I even wonder, you know, was there an appeal by Jesus to Judas in those words, you know? And you look at him like, you don't have to do this. You know it has to happen. Maybe he was still seeking Judas, I don't know, offering him a way out, by exposing him. He's directly telling Judas he knows what his intention is. And if Jesus is making an appeal like that, if he is, he doesn't have any effect on Judas. It just hardens him, and then as he hardens his heart, Satan enters into him. So Judas in verse 25, he uses the same, he asks the same question that the other disciples are asking. So he's implying that, surely it's not me. So surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answers in a way that's unusual, but not unusual for him. He often answers a question like this saying, yeah, but it is true. Uh, he says, you have said it yourself. He says that a number of times in the New Testament. So he, rather than just say, it is you, he says, you've said it. And that's how he says, no, the answer is not a no, it's a yes. It isn't clear how much of this exchange the other apostles heard. Luke actually says, you know, when this all started, this whole thing about the betrayal thing, Luke says they began dis discussing among, among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. So here's where the... Uh, Internal relationships between the 12 kind of come out, and I would love to have heard that conversation. You know, I know it's not me, but Matthias, you, you, Bartholomew, I think, you know, this just going around the horn there, you know, you don't, you, you that one time you did kind of flake out on one of those preaching tours. I, I think it might have been you, you know, I don't know. They're pointing fingers. So there's a lot of talking after Jesus made that pronouncement. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, we know, at the Last Supper. No, they don't sit in chairs. They're on cushions, kind of leaning in on a, towards a table and eating like this. And John is right next to Jesus, and he, he's leaning back on him. The Bible says he was leaning on Jesus' breast. So he's leaning back, and Peter is trying to get John's attention. And Peter says, tell us who he's talking about. So very quietly, right in Jesus' ear, John, in John's gospel, he says, Lord. Who is it? Who is it? And Jesus actually answers him. This is John 13, 26. That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, I think only John heard that. It was right up against his face, and he just whispered that to his ear. And then John says at that point, Satan entered into him. So Satan's taking control of Judas. I don't know if Judas was salvageable up to that point or not. Not according to God's sovereign will, but I don't know if Jesus was making an appeal to him, offering him mercy. But Judas chose to go forward and yielded himself to every evil desire that he had to get away from the situation with whatever money he could get for himself and, and just leave Jesus to his fate. We talked last week about how, and I'm pretty sure this is it, he just realized this wasn't the real thing. He believed Jesus was going to be the Messiah. He believed he would be high in the kingdom and he would be one of his close guys. And when he saw Jesus with this death wish and his kind of quitting through self-sacrifice, he was like, I'm out of here. I was wrong about this whole deal. It's not going my way. So he 
betraying him was, I think, easy, actually, for him in some ways, even though he knew him for years and had been loved by him deeply. So Jesus, perceiving Satan's presence in Judah, says one more sentence to him. And again, it's showing his total control of the situation. He's in, he's in control. That's how we started. He says, what you do, do quickly. It doesn't say how he said it. I imagine there's sadness in it. Um, it doesn't sound angry. It's not intense. But we do see here Jesus accepting his mission, um, why he came, moving forward with it. Um, the only thing waiting for him to die now is just to have this last moments with his men. So the arrangements made for the, the supper, the upper room with the disciples. Jesus actually set it up that way so Judas wouldn't know where, where they are. So Peter and John are the ones that knew. And when they got there, they're all together. So there was no opportunity to betray the location of this beforehand. So even if Judas goes and gets the high priest and starts talking to them and brings them back, they're going to be done by the time that happens. So he's not worried about that. So he just needed this one more evening for final instructions and exhortations and to inaugurate the new covenant. So that's the covenant that Judas missed out on completely. You know, you've got four gospels and you, sometimes you got to kind of weave together their um, arguments or the, the points that they're making uh, the order of events that happened. But Judas apparently was there earlier, when before the supper, when Jesus washed their feet, right? Now kind of picture that scene. So here's Jesus. He takes off his outer cloak. He's dressed like a slave. He gets a basin of water. He ties a towel around himself, and he starts washing their feet, which is what a slave does. That was a low household slave job. And he comes to Judas, and we, we aren't told what happened with that interaction, but he's washing Judas's feet. Whether they made eye contact during that time or not, I don't know. But um, what do you think entered, entered Judas's mind? Because he'd already made plans to betray Jesus. We know that. So what would enter his mind? Would it, would it be a soft thought or a hard thought? Um, would it be, how can I betray a man as humble as this? Would it be that thought, or would it be, man, he's acting like a slave. He's not a Messiah at all. I had him pegged just right. He's weak. He's weak. I will get no profit from this man. I was totally wrong about him. He's no king. He's no king. So the love and humility of Jesus, I think Judas would have seen as an obstacle to his ambition. I think that's what it was. And instead of appreciate it, one of the most beautiful acts in history would have hated him for it, I think. So that's how you open your heart to Satan. You see God's love as weakness. You take advantage of it. And you see the humility of God in Christ as something to be despised instead of celebrated. And our world does. Our world mocks Jesus. And it's the most beautiful thing ever. The human heart is capable of such incredible evil in rationalizing sin and pursuing its goals for any purpose. It, it defies God's word. It rejects the love of Christ. It twists what is good into something hateful and wicked. And we rationalize sin and justify all kinds of behavior. That same heart is just full of pride, and, and Judas is just full of all of that. That's who he is. So it's, it's hard to say exactly how Judas feels about Jesus because he seems calm here, but 
if you've ever experienced a, um, a genuine betrayal in your life, and I'm talking about calm, I'm talking about Jesus being calm, you know that a lot of the grief comes from it being unexpected, right? I mean, that's what makes it hurt. Et tu, Brute? Caesar said as uh, his friend Brutus plunged in the knife, right? You know, right before him. You can't help but wonder at the moment of betrayal, where did this start? Where did, where did, how did you turn against me? What made that, that happen? Was, was he insincere all along? Was all the ministry we did together and the, the flattery and the, the, the words, was it just flattery and pretense and phoniness? Or was there something real there? And um, all the, the help he gave to our ministry for three years, uh, gosh, he was one of the 12. But Jesus apparently knew all along because he, he does say in John 6, one of you is a devil. But it's hard to imagine Jesus not trying to reach Judas and um, for Judas's sake. Because if Judas had turned, somebody else would have been the tempter or the betrayer, right? And Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost, and Judas was the most lost person in his presence. So I'm sure he tried to reach out to him. But when that failed, Jesus was completely accepting of what had to be. And that's the way we've got to be. God ordains all things... And we are responsible for our actions. So whatever he ordains is all right, even if it means suffering. We need to do what he wants us to do. We need to be faithful. So as Christians, we follow Christ when we obey him faithfully in everything because we know that what he says to do is his will. That's his clear will, his express will, his um, preceptive will, the things he tells us that we need to do. We just do that. And then we accept his will as perfect for us no matter what our circumstances are. You know how people justify sin when things don't go their way? Yeah, but I had to, right? But that's not what Jesus does, and he's our model. It's not I had to, it's I don't have to, and I will endure whatever he puts before me if that's what he wants me to do. That's exactly where Jesus' heart is, and we're supposed to be the same way. Even great evil, even calamity, God can make for his good. He can use it for his good. He used to support a missionary named Biniyaman Yusuf, who was a wonderful man, and he uh, spent years in prison in Ethiopia. I think I've told this story before, but he, uh, he was imprisoned by his dad, who was a Muslim, because he became a Christian, and he threw him in prison for being a Christian, and every Friday on the Muslim Holy Day, his father would come and say, are you ready to repent and be, come back to Islam? And he said, no. So he just left him there. And then Ethiopia was conquered by the communists in a revolution. And the communists, uh, he was out briefly, and then the communists threw him in prison for being a Christian. And um, he just saw it as God's perfect will. He told a story about a mouse that found a piece of a crumb of bread in his cell. And he said, ah. Oh, you know, if God can feed that little mouse in this place, he can take care of me. And he actually converted one of his guards, and he helped him escape, and he ended up in the United States. And then he went back to Ethiopia and planted at least 40 or 50 churches. And then he died very young. He had, had a lot of suffering from his uh, torture that he endured for years in prison. He didn't look at that calamity and all that suffering as, God's betrayed me, he's turned against me, uh, I don't need to obey him anymore. It was, this is his will for this short life that I have. I will serve him with everything that I have during this time. That's the way to be. Our lives don't belong to us, do they? They belong to him. He purchased them with his blood. So 
The traitor has left the upper room. Jesus turns his attention to show um, how salvation from sin is going to be accomplished. He takes the bread and the wine, and he uses them to describe the most important thing that's ever happened in human history. And next Sunday, we'll talk about that, the symbols of salvation at Meadowlark School, and we will partake of the Lord's table together on that day. Okay, let's pray. Oh God, we rejoice in your sovereign plan, your infinite ability to arrange events according to your purposes. It awes us that even the most heinous act served the purpose of your saving love. May we rejoice in our Savior and your wisdom. And Father, help our lives, help our hearts submit willingly to your purposes and plans. Always point us to your sovereign goodness so our trust never falters. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.